Thanks, Gary. Good morning, everyone. Today's Bible reading comes from Psalm 89. Uh, I don't normally say this when I get up to read the Bible at church, but strapping. Uh, it's a great psalm, and I can't wait to hear Ben's sermon on this today. Please join with me as I read. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of your holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon, sing your joy, sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endued with power. Your hand is strong, your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favour you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my saviour. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my laws and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. 
You've broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbours. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendour and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility have you created all men? What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Well, it's a hot summer's day. It's a big psalm. Uh, some of us have been at a fantastic wedding last night, celebrating the marriage of uh, Lachlan Webb and Caitlin Dillon. And uh, I'm uh, seeking to uh, modify my preaching method to go away from full text and back to uh, point form notes, which I hope is seen as a credit to this congregation, my church family, that I feel comfortable enough to do so. Therefore, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak powerfully uh, by your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit at work among us as we gather under your word, and we pray that you would speak powerfully and truthfully to us through me this morning in a way that brings glory and honour to your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and making us more like him, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, by the way, there will be absolutely no slides this morning, so if you're someone who likes to read along with the Bible, uh, including scripture slides, I encourage you obviously to, to have your Bibles at the ready. Friends, a self-evident truth of life in general is that uh, there's often a, uh, an unwelcome distinction between the ideal and the reality. Sometimes that distinction can be rather trivial. I wish my kids would... Go to sleep no later than, insert preferred time here, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whatever it is. But of course, the reality does not always match up with the ideal. Ideally, there'd always be peace and harmony between neighbours, but in reality, some people play drums. <laughs> Imagine being that guy. Of course, sometimes the fact there's a difference between the ideal and the reality is anything but trivial and very painful. Ideally, all women should be able to conceive and give birth to children. The reality is we are all too sadly familiar with infertility, with miscarriage, with stillbirth, with sudden infant death. Ideally, married Christians will be content in their marriages and single Christians will be content with their singleness. But we know there's all sorts of relational pain in God's household. Ideally, long-term church members will not leave their church without a good gospel-driven reason, and certainly not unless it's on good terms, but in reality, it doesn't always go like that. Even worse, some people turn away from what we thought was a genuine following of the Lord Jesus himself. Ideally, there's 
Not all sorts of alterations and cancellations on account of a worldwide pandemic. And no one ever feels ostracised for their political views on vaccination and government policy. And apparently egotistical tennis players don't divide the country either. A bit of a fail going on there, isn't there? Friends, this psalm raises the issue of how we come to terms with the fact that there's often an ideal and a reality that are very distinct from one another, and that for the people of God. Now, at one level, that shouldn't take us as a surprise, should it? Because if you remember back from two weeks ago, we looked at the psalm that came before this, probably the darkest of lament psalms in the whole Psalter, namely Psalm 88. But this psalm here raises the question with a tiny bit more hope of positivity, and that's not saying much, of what it is that can carry us through when we find ourselves doubting God's faithfulness. With that question in mind, we come to the psalm and we do the work of seeing what God is saying through this part of his holy word. He begins verse 1 very positively. I will sing of Yahweh's great love forever. With my mouth I'll make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Notice that praise of God is verbal and it's to others. I will declare things about you and, and I will say that, you know, with my mouth I will sing. With my mouth I will declare. It's a very verbal kind of thing is the praise of God. And these verses make it clear that the psalm is talking about two things that go together, you know, hand and foot. It's the faithfulness and the love of Yahweh that, that go hand together. His love and his faithfulness. Now, you might have worked this out by now. In, in Hebrew poetry, it's not so much about rhyme as, as about sort of balance between two things. You kind of get couplets all the way through heaps of the Psalms. And, well, his love and faithfulness. God's love and faithfulness have no equal. Why do they have no equal? Verse 2, they are established in heaven itself. But what is it about God that shows him to be loving and faithful? Well, according to this psalm, it's the Davidic covenant. There's a new word for you if you didn't know that, the Davidic covenant. Look in the verse 3. Here's the praise that the psalmist give with his mouth. Verse 3, you said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Now, of all the ways the psalmist could demonstrate God's love and God's faithfulness, he chooses the Davidic covenant. As you can see, not only in the first four verses, but really the, the whole pattern of the psalm, if you look at verses 1 and 2 of the psalm, you'll see that they get fleshed out in verses 5 through 17 where the writer shows us how it is that God's love and faithfulness are established in heaven and on earth. But he spends even more time fleshing out the Davidic covenant in verses 18 through 37. According to the psalmist, you see God's love and faithfulness most clearly in the Davidic covenant. So to sort of say that in a different way, You've got one stack of the psalm, God has established the earth, he's, he's uh, given it form, and, and, and that's really good, you know, faithfulness uh, and love are seen. But hey, this promise that he made to David, wow, that's where you really get an intensification of the faithfulness and love of God. And so it obviously begs a question for us, well, what is this Davidic covenant? What is the agreement, if you like, that God made 
with David, the king. Uh, well, it's something that's always worth sort of having in your mind as, as one of the, the big sort of uh, uh, stakes in the, the whole narrative of the scriptures is God's promises to David. I'll give you a very quick sketch. After God creates the heavens and the earth, humanity rebels against him and uh, invites the curses of a holy God. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 12, God says, I'm loving and faithful. Instead of curses, we're going to have blessing. And he chooses a guy named Abram and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give, make you a great nation, give you a great land. And through you, the world will find blessing. Uh, Abraham does become a great nation through his descendants. They're rescued out of Egypt. They come into the promised land. And foolishly, and we saw this in our last sermon series, they think, let's become like all the other nations. They're going to get a king just like them. And God does a big face palm and they get Saul. But then God goes, no, I'm going to choose a king and the king's going to be a little bit like me. He's going to be according to my heart. And he chooses King David. Now, after a while, David has unified all of Israel. He's defeated the Philistines in the way that Saul couldn't have dreamt of. And he's kind of resting and he goes, you know what? Ever since we came up out of Egypt, God's been living in a tent and here I am in this great palace. Tell you what, I think I should build a house for God. The house for God is, of course, a temple. God says, oh, that's nice, David. Thank you. It's just, you know, I'm God and not even the highest heavens can contain me, but you want to build a house, isn't that cute? You know what, though, David? When, now that we're on this topic of house building i got a better idea. I will build you a house. It's an interesting play on words in Hebrew. The word for house can mean thing you live in, but it can also mean your family line. So I am in the house of Pakula, and my children are part of my house. They're, they're Pakulas as well. And, and my grandchildren, if God blesses me with them, will be in the house of Pakula. And so God says, you know, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to ensure that your Offspring, your bloodline, your son and the son after him and the son after him whatever, will only ever always be on the throne of my people Israel. You're going to have an everlasting kingdom. There will always be a king in the line of David ruling over my people. And that means that you would expect sooner or later there'd be a king in the line of David ruling over the whole earth for whom God's blessing was going to come. And so David goes, wow, that's really nice. I really like that. Now, he might have been thinking to himself, wait a minute, you, you said Saul would be the king. You put your anointing oil on him and, you know, that didn't work out. And God says, yep, that's right, Saul. I did reject it, but that, that will never happen with you. You know what, David? Even if the son who's ruling after you does bad stuff, he will be disciplined. With the floggings of men, I'll discipline him, but I will never remove my love from him. There will always be someone on your throne in your line forever. David goes, thanks God, you're amazing. And he is. So there's the Davidic covenant. And it's worth reading that, that big sort of stake of biblical theology. And you get it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's a purple passage, people. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a great read. We're not going to go through it now, but 2 Samuel chapter 7. If I keep saying 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll remember it. Anyway, this psalm shows us how that covenant with David works. And it works in three ways. Firstly, it works because, unsurprisingly, David is blessed. Just as Abraham is blessed, well, the blessing's going to keep going through David. Look with me at verse 19. Come in your Bibles to verse 19. 
The psalmist writes, Once, God, you spoke in a vision to your faithful people and said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant with my sacred oil. I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. David is blessed by God. I mean, we saw that as soon as he struck down Goliath, right? A young man who's a, who's a warrior. Who can deny that he was so powerful because of what God had done through and for him? And because David is blessed, successful in, in his exploits, well, that, of course, means God's people Israel are blessed. Come down to verse 22. Verse 22, no enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries, which is exactly what happened. David really got rid of the Philistines in his, in his reign. And if David's enemies are crushed, well, then Israel will live in safety and prosperity. And presumably, the other nations will then find the blessing that God had intended to come through Israel's prosperity. What's the really big, someone can yell it out, what's the really big example of someone from a faraway nation coming and seeing the immense blessing of God's Davidic kingdoms? Anyone know who I'm thinking about? Queen of Sheba, spot on. Comes from whoop whoop, the back of nowhere, the back of Burke, it would have been thought in the ancient world, and goes, I haven't even seen half. I haven't been told half of how glorious Solomon's kingdom is, Solomon being the successor to David at that point. That's the first way the covenant works. Brings a blessing to God, uh, God's king, God's people, and then the world. The second way the covenant works is by having a representative of God among his people. We're going to do a bit of comparison here in the psalm. Look at verse 9, and I don't know if you need to turn a page or not in your Bible. We're going to compare verse 9 and verse 25. So verse 9, it's speaking about God. This is the, the praise of his love and faithfulness as God. It says, verse 9, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. But then it's speaking of David in verse 25. It says, I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. Again, compare verse 10 to verse 23. Look at me over verse 10. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. And by the way, Rahab here is not the, the, the former prostitute Rahab. It's like a nickname for, for Egypt as an evil empire, right? You, you crushed Egypt like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. And now verse 23, I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. The character of the king in the Davidic covenant is just like the character of God. You might even go so far as to say that Israel are given an image of the invisible God through this Davidic covenant. Now, don't get me wrong, we all know about David and we all know about his sons they are not always the image of the invisible God. As a matter of fact, David had some serious doozies in his kingship, did he not? But you get the idea. There's representation of who God is, what his character is like through the king that he's installed via this Davidic covenant. The covenant works because God's people have a representative of God as their leader and therefore they can live in relationship with him. They can live the way God intends for them to live. That's the second way the covenant works. The third way the, the covenant with David works is that it continues forever. Uh, Stacy and I hadn't been dating long, or I thought it might be impressive of me to try and cook something for her. That was a dumb move because she's brilliant and I'm hopeless. 
And I said, because I was still, even back then, I was intimidated by how good she was in the kitchen. I said, you can't come in here. You stay out there while I cook. But even then, after a while, she goes, look, if you're doing what I think you're doing, you need to get this and get that and find this and that. It's like, she could just tell from there. Anyway, I mentioned that because one of the, when I was um, trying to impress her, by the way, that's one of the few times I've ever cooked. Ever since then, I'm like, no. <laughs> um, there, there, there was this uh, huge old pot that I hadn't seen before. Uh, not that I've seen many of the pots in our house, but I hadn't seen this one before. And, and I, you know, Stace, what's this? Is this something that the people who lived here before like had? And she, oh, no, that's the best pot in the house. Really? What is it? I always get the pronunciation wrong. La Crusette. It's a La Crusette pot. Does anyone know what a La Crusette pot is? Yeah, of course, some people who know what cooking is, right? But get this. The La Crusette pot, the reason it's the best pot in the house, she says, it comes literally with a lifetime new for old replacement warranty. Like if you buy it when you're 15 and when you're 85, it cracks, you get a new for old replacement. A lifetime, right? Forever. Uh, well, this is far better than a luck reset. Verse 28, I will maintain my love to him forever. My covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever. His throne as long as the heavens endure. This is the La Crusette covenant, this one. God says it outright that David's bloodline will continue in the kingship for all eternity. And not only that, but even when the Davidic kings are disobedient toward God, even when the pot cracks, he will still maintain the covenant. Verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with a rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David that his line will continue ever and forever and his throne will endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witnesses. You can't get any more forever and emphatic than that, can you, right? God, by his holiness, has sworn this is going to be the case. And God is so faithful that his covenant comes with an eternal warranty, an eternal warranty. And of course, the psalm could end there. That would be fantastic and joyful and uplifting, and we'll sing that praise of God about how faithful he is and, and how that all came to pass. But of course, then comes what I reckon is the ultimate in Bible blow-ups. I think it's the biggest one in Scripture, frankly, the psalm writer snaps big time and he blatantly accuses God directly of breaking faith. You listen to the rage and the desperation and the frustration as the psalmist accuses God of breaking faith. Verse 38, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your service and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by have plundered him and he's become the scorn of his neighbours. You have exalted the right hand of his foes and have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth and have covered him with a mantle of shame. You know, except that this is in the Bible, we would surely think that's blasphemy. To so directly, blatantly accuse God 
of being faithless. Why on earth is there such a turnaround? Has this guy lost the plot? Well, if you can remember from a couple of weeks ago, all 150 psalms that compose the Psalter have been divided into five books. This happens to be the last psalm of book three, which gives theological reflection to the very tragic decline of Israel under the Davidic kingship. That decline is seen when, well, the ten northern tribes have been dispersed to the Assyrians and the two southern tribes are besieged by the Babylonians who have already been picking at them like seagulls at chips. And uh, this psalm is sometime around the exile when the last lot of Israelites after the Babylonians have smashed through the wall and killed most of the army have been taken off in slavery to Babylon. The Davidic kingship and the Davidic covenant has, at least as this psalmist can recognise, failed. If you want to see the most tragic part of uh, the, uh, the history of Israel, you get this in the last two chapters of the book of two kings. Uh, there was a, uh, the Babylonians kept coming in and, and, and trying to discipline Israel for, for them trying to rebel against them. And there was a king named Jehoiachin, or is it Jehoiakim? I always get this wrong. Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim. I think it's Jehoiachin is the good one. And Jehoiachin gets removed because they don't like him and they install their own vassal king, a guy named Matan, who then gets his name changed to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah has another crack. He goes, you know what? Stuff the Babylonians will rebel against them. And the Babylonians go, you know, I've had enough of this. And so they besiege the place for a couple of years, which is horrendous. Zedekiah and his army try to escape as the Babylonians break through the wall. Of course, they get caught. The last thing we read about Zedekiah is that his sons are brought in front of him and then they're all executed and then he has his eyes gouged out and then he's put into chains and he's marched off to Babylon. There's the end of God's great Davidic kingship. For the psalmist, his ideal and his reality couldn't be further apart. They're extremely different things. And therefore, he doubts God's faithfulness. What does he do then? Well, the psalmist does the only logical thing that someone would do if they thought God wasn't faithful. He contemplates whether there's even any point to life itself. Verse 47, remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you've created all men. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? It's actually a worse predicament to be, than, to be in than the atheist. The atheist is just a fool. He says in his heart, there's no God. But the person who knows there's a God and thinks God is yet faithless is somehow even worse. No wonder he's despairing of life itself. You know what? There's every chance in a room this size or with the amount of people online that you've felt like this person. Maybe you currently do feel like this person. So what's the take-home here at this point? Well, even when the ideal is so far off from the reality, God never, never denies himself. God only ever, always keeps his promises. We know this because he actually did keep his covenant with David even though his anointed king had the days of his youth cut short 
and was indeed plundered by his enemies. You might put it poetically by saying, even when there's death, the plans of God will survive. It's a lesson that his people needed to learn again and again. As a matter of fact, there are two men who learned that lesson after the death of his anointed on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. But I get ahead of myself. You see at the end of the psalm, and I hope you felt a little bit sort of a bit of a jerk as, as Kerry read this, amen and amen, praise the Lord. Like this sort of like, what? My life sucks, I want to die. Amen and amen is how it ends. Not quite. Almost certainly the case that the, the, the inspired person or persons who divided up the Psalter and, and put it together inserted that to let you know that this is the last psalm in this book. And then the next book, book four opens, and there's this whole stream of psalms of praise. And what's interesting about that big stream of psalms of praise is that the king is not mentioned. I mean, there's no king now because the the Davidic line has failed. But what you do hear repeated in those psalms over and over is, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, which could literally be translated as the Lord is king. There is actually a rightness to getting to the point where stuff is stripped back so much that you realise the only thing that's constant is God and his faithfulness. There's, you can even rejoice in the fact that, well, hey, we didn't have a king in the time of Moses and God was faithful and, well, the Davidic line has failed, inverted commas, but hey, God must still be our king and that's right. But of course, we get that confirmed for us much more uh, uh, strongly in the New Testament. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I'm looking from verse 29 of Acts chapter 2. That's the great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter lifts his voice and he says, after his big uh, biblical theological explanation of the pouring out of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 29, you should be there by now, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, that's David, seeing what was ahead, He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, which, by the way, presupposes the death of the Messiah. You kind of have to die if you're going to be resurrected. He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. In other words, he's received the thing by which the blessing of God comes to the king, to Israel, and eventually to the whole world, beginning at Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth, the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ, of course, was a descendant of David who was killed by a foreign power and his people scattered, But when Jesus rose from death, he went to sit on the throne of God in heaven where God's love and faithfulness are firmly established. And from there, he continues to rule as a Davidic king to this very day. Right now, there happens to be a king in the line of David on the throne that God has established, ruling over Israel and ruling over the ends of the earth. His name is Jesus and he is the king. There will never be another 
king in the line of Jesus because he has an indestructible and eternal life. He reigns now and will forevermore. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God fulfilled his Davidic covenant and brought blessing to Israel, which is what's happening as the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jews from all different nations under heaven in Acts 2 and continues to be poured out as the good news about Jesus being the king gets shared with whoever has ears to hear it. The ideal and the reality in this life will often be very different. Christians will often have times where we have intense and frustrating suffering and hardship, where we're led to doubt the faithfulness of God. And there is no quick fix. One of the great things about the Psalms of Lament, even with this guy basically going nuts at God, is there's a sense of validation that God is happy for us to cry out in frustration and anguish to him. He's a big God. It's not like he gets dethroned if you say something that you know hurts him too much or something like that. And of course, I'm not talking about being blasphemous or anything. This guy's Ethan. He's, not, he's being really legitimate about how he feels with God. But the resurrection of the Christ is an objective reality. It doesn't matter how we feel. That does not influence the truth of the resurrected Christ who reigns on God's throne and brings blessing to us and the whole world and will continue to do so. No matter how much we doubt God's faithfulness, no matter how much anger we direct at God for the way things are, there is absolutely nothing that will ever stop God from being completely faithful, completely trustworthy. Now, true, that might be the only thing you've got left. But gosh, think of the alternative. If it's between that or nothing, I know what I'd choose. In the most desperate and dire of circumstances, amidst the absolute pits of despair and defeat, or in the much more you know, light and mild despair of a worldwide pandemic and all the mess that goes with that, amidst the death of the most important person who ever lived, even, God, who is infinitely powerful, is at work fulfilling his promises, bringing about an ultimate healing and restoration for all his people. It may be that for someone right now, that reminder is the most important thing they've heard in a long time. It may be for you that you're like, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable with that, whatever, but there, you might not need to store this away for the time when you end up being an Ethan the Ezraite. Either way, let me lead us in prayer that we would never doubt the goodness and faithfulness of the God of resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the risen Saviour, the Davidic King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that not even death, the destruction of his life and the scattering of your people could ever get in the way of you being completely loving and completely faithful. And we thank you that's an objective truth that no matter how difficult things may be for us, in this life here and now, we can hold on to that with incredible rejoicing. And we thank you for your amazing grace in that regard, Father, and pray that we would hold to that if there's suffering now or if perhaps when it comes in the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.